The economic recovery gained momentum in the spring as American consumers continued spending despite rising interest rates and warnings of a looming recession. The gross domestic product adjusted for inflation rose at a 2.4% annual rate in the second quarter. Now, this is according to the Commerce Department. The resilience of the economy has surprised economists, many of whom thought that high inflation and the Federal Reserve's efforts to stamp it out through aggressive interest rate increases would lead to a recession or at least a clear slowdown in the first half of the year. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump met today with officials in the office of the special counsel, Jack Smith, as federal prosecutors edge closer toward bringing an indictment against Mr. Trump in connection with his wide ranging efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It was not immediately clear what subjects would be discussed at the meeting today or if Mr. Smith would even take part. But similar gatherings are often used by defense lawyers as a last-ditch effort to argue against charges being filed or to convey their version of events in a criminal investigation. New data shows that at elite private colleges, the children of alumni, known as legacies, are in fact slightly more qualified than typical applicants as judged by admissions offices. Even if their legacy status wasn't considered, they would still be about 33% more likely to be admitted than applicants with the same test scores based on all of their other qualifications, such as demographic characteristics, parents' income, and education. Now, this is according to an analysis conducted by Opportunity Insights. This is a research group out of Harvard. Yet, it's important to note that the admissions advantage that these students get at many elite colleges for being children of alumni is far greater than that. These students were nearly four times as likely to be admitted as applicants with the same test scores, and legacy students from the richest 1% of families were five times as likely to be admitted. Very few doctors were punished for spreading COVID-19 misinformation. A post-analysis of disciplinary records from state medical boards found that they were rarely disciplined, uh, doctors, that is, who misled patients about vaccines, masks, and unproven treatment. There were at least 480 COVID misinformation-related complaints to the boards, but only a tiny fraction of those led to disciplinary action. Now, this is according to, or including, five doctors who lost their medical license. Florida legislators passed a law in May that effectively prevents professional boards from punishing doctors accused of spreading COVID misinformation online. Well, country music has been ablaze about a song and video that Jason Aldean insists honors small town America, right down to a tape of him singing about vigilantism with blue jeans bravado at the site of a lynching. These new subtle references are clear to Michael Trotter Jr., a Nashville-based musician who grew up in D.C. and whose duo's own anti-violence track just made former President Barack Obama's summer playlist. Now, the song Ain't No Harmin' Me from the husband-wife duo, The War and Treaty, is the antidote to everything Aldean is peddling which Trotter says has nothing to do with real patriotism. Their song, 
that is, the song of Michael Trotter Jr. and his wife is about resilience and strength and love in the face of violence and adversity. Ron DeSantis, donors have specifically raised concerns about the campaign's finances, which appear both troubling and persistently opaque. Some prominent vendors did not show up on the first Federal Election Commission report, raising questions about how much of the spending has been deferred and whether the campaign's total reported cash on hand for the primary, uh, which they say is $9.2 million, was even close to accurate. Major Republican donors, including the hedge fund billionaire Kenneth Griffin, have remained on the sidelines because they are disappointed in DeSantis's performance and his campaign. The Justice Department today said that it had begun a sweeping civil rights investigation into policing in Memphis, examining allegations of pervasive problems with excessive force and unlawful stops of Black residents that were amplified by the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols in January. In announcing the investigation, officials specifically cited the death of Mr. Nichols, a 29-year-old Black man who's beaten by Memphis police officers on January 7th of this year, was captured by body cam and surveillance footage. The case stoked outrage across the country and directed intense scrutiny onto how the Memphis Police Department operates. Well, the strike involving writers and actors continues on, and actors now are taken to the internet to show their residual checks with some in the negative. One of the demands that actors and screenwriters are making in trying to renegotiate their contracts with Hollywood studios is greater residual payments. And several people in the entertainment industry have come forward to share what those residual checks actually look like. Actress Mandy Moore, who starred as the matriarch Rebecca Pearson in NBC's This Is Us, said she received a streaming residual check for a penny and another check for only 81 cents. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, two superstar contributors are returning to the show, Kennedy Sessions, Houston area Metro reporter at Cron, and Dr. Calvin John Smiley is back. He is a professor and the author of Purgatory, Citizenship, Reentry, Race, and Abolition. And in hour two, that's the hour where we go deeper and bring you the news behind the headlines with newsmakers, thought leaders, people impacted by the news, and the nation's leading experts. In hour two today, I'm talking to one of the nation's uh, ultimate or most celebrated, I should say, newsmakers, Dr. Jocelyn Elders, and a documentary filmmaker, Dr. Sonny Wheaton. Uh, Dr. Wheaton chronicles Dr. Elders' life and work, which led Time Magazine to name Dr. Elders as one of the 100 most influential women of the 20th century. Now, this work is chronicled in a new short documentary called From the Cotton Fields to the White House. We're going to meet Dr. Elders, hear her incredible story. She's turning 90 years old on August 13th. We're going to talk about uh, how she went from the cotton fields to becoming the first African-American surgeon general under Bill Clinton's administration and talk about some of the humiliation she suffered when she was forced to resign that position 
in literally less than one year. But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. Now, some say Beyonce should have been an economist because her 2011 observation that girls run the world, well, it ain't true in a literal sense because we know that cisgender white males really run the world. But it is true in the sense that ladies are having a moment. The blowout success of Taylor Swift's heiress tour combined with the record box office juice of the Barbie movie is helping to boost the economy and some say prevent a recession. Now, according to some well-respected economists, there is a new formula driving the U.S. economy. They look at it like this. They say Taylor Swift plus Barbie equals Goldilocks, a.k.a. uh, the definition of an economy that is not too hot or too cold. These economists say economic data for July show that consumers are prioritizing experiences and entertainment over buying tangible things. They're scooping up Barbie tickets and spending a lot on all of the related merch. They're also shelling out top dollar for tickets to Swift's heiress tour and turning a one-night concert into a fabulous two-day girls' trip. These economists say that the post-pandemic economy laid the foundation and the groundwork for swift economics, they're calling it. <laughs> this economic turbocharge uh, Taylor Swift's heiress tour is bringing to each city where she performs. Now, the rise of hybrid work, basically people being able to work from home and willing to travel out of town to see Taylor Swift and book a longer stay is what is driving all the money that's pouring into some of these cities. Uh, It's a lot easier to attend a concert when you work from home, when you can literally take your computer with you on the road, you can book a room in a hotel, work in the daytime, and go to the concert at night. So some of the constraints that working in an office uh, put on individuals is gone, and folks feel free, and they can get out there and, and visit different cities to see these concerts. Local consumer spending tied to Taylor Swift's concerts and her tour, according to some estimates, could be as high as $4.6 billion. And this isn't just money spent on the concert tickets or the hotel rooms or the merchandise. These women are dining out. They're hiring designers to make special outfits to wear to the concert so they can dress like a Swifty. Uh, They're hiring local, they're hitting local museums and visiting local businesses. And then businesses in these towns are creating special stuff just for Swifties to buy, like special donuts. Now that Beyonce's Renaissance tour just hit the U.S. in July, economists are watching to see whether there's going to be another economic boost as a result of Beyonce's tour uh, throughout the country. Now, it's noted that uh, there was increased spending linked to Beyonce's performances in Sweden. Uh, Some say that her concert there may have caused an uptick in the country's inflation rate. So the next time someone asks you who run the world, tell them girls at least sort of, (laughs) when we come forward. Today's breaking news with my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580.
This is Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin. In this hour, we are tracking today's trending and breaking news with Dr. Calvin John Smiley. He is here to help us make sense of this sometimes crazy and mixed up world. Uh, Dr. Smiley is the author of Purgatory Citizenship, Reentry, Race, and Abolition. He's also a professor. Dr. Smiley, literally, as uh, we're sitting here waiting to go back on the air, I get a you know, ping on my phone that there are now additional charges that have been filed by the special counsel uh, in the uh, federal case pending against Donald Trump with respect to his mishandling of classified documents. The Office of the Special Counsel accuses now the former president of seeking to delete security camera footage at Mar-a-Lago. Apparently, uh, a maintenance worker at that property, Carlos de Oliveira, was also named as a new defendant. Uh, the new charges accuse Mr. de Oliveira of being part of a conspiracy. And they lay out this uh, very intricate you know, story and efforts by Mr. Nada, who we know is Trump's one of his personal assistants, to speak with Mr. de, de, de Oliveira about the security camera footage and telling him that the boss wants it gone and you know how do we get rid of it and so now you have another i would say otherwise innocent employee of donald trump who has been federally indicted we have these additional charges uh, against donald trump of trying to delete uh camera footage and there's also a charge related to him showing some of the classified documents to uh third parties in an effort to help his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, write a book. Where does it end for these Republicans that continue to stand up and stand beside Donald Trump? You know, the Donald Trump is is the black hole, um, and he's and he just sucks sucks people in uh, into that vortex who are around him. And you know, it's a shame that people the, the people you just mentioned. Uh, you know, because they were, they're workers for him. And so there's this kind of awkwardness of like, you do what the boss says. And as we've seen time and again, it's those around Donald Trump that, that are really the ones who get hit, hit the, hit the hardest, whether it's Michael Cohen or probably Mr. Uh, De La Alavera. Um, but to your question, um, I don't think it ends until, um, uh, until the election cycle for the the GOP. We have seen that the Republicans are not a party of standards and morals. They're a party of power. Um, That is what they are beholden to. And so if Trump is the one who's wielding it, that's who they um, get in line for. And and that's really a shame for democracy because, um, you know, that kind of uh, strategy uh, only only hurts uh, those uh, within the democratic system. So it hurts the people, it hurts uh, democratic values, and it really has made a charade. And I think as I may have mentioned in a, in a previous show, you know, there's this kind of Jerry Springer effect that we have where there's just this kind of sensationalism and what's the next thing that Donald Trump is going to do and and people are tuning in for it. So um, yeah, <laughs> I, I just don't know where it ends. Yeah, you're right. It has become and has always been one big circus and the news media covers it almost like it's, you know, the Super Bowl. And every time, you know, one team, one team is the, the federal prosecutor and special counsel, and one team is Donald Trump's team. 
And it's this blow by blow, play by play, uh, you know, in terms of the actions that are being taken. And none of this is really surprising. Of course, he would have asked these workers of his where there's this power dynamic to get rid of tape or to hide boxes or to hide documents. And of course, most workers that work for him would be intimidated and would think that, you know, the boss told me to do it. I should do it. We know that he frequently tells people he's going to pay their legal fees. He's going to protect them. He's going to pardon them. We see Rudy Giuliani yesterday having to admit that he lied on two African-American female election workers in Atlanta uh, spread it, you know, he spread these lies about them tampering with votes uh, in Atlanta. And he had to come clean uh, because now he himself is being sued in defamation action. He himself is under federal investigation. His bar license uh, is at stake. And it, it really just surprises me that the, the maintenance worker and the personal assistant kind of get where they are because, you know, maybe they're paid a great deal. Maybe they don't know any better. Maybe they don't know that, you know, if, if a subpoena has been issued by the Department of Justice, you probably don't want to touch anything and that you might be committing a federal crime. That you could be charged for a conspiracy. But what always does still surprise me to this day are those folks like Rudy Giuliani, these well-educated folks who had, you know, otherwise great careers. Michael Cohen just the other day talked about you know, he was just barred, convicted, served jail time. And he said his whole life, including his livelihood, his ability to make money, was tied up in him being a lawyer. He's been a lawyer since he you know, graduated law school 25 years. And he lost everything. And he just talked about, you know, being so angry at himself for allowing himself to get wrapped up into Trump's drama and become, you know, his hitman. And now his whole life, you know, he's lost, he said, friends and reputation uh, and obviously his ability to make money. So those kind of folks uh, still to this day, I, I scratch my head and go, oh, my God, like Rudy Giuliani, you were one of the most beloved mayors in this country. Yeah, but there's just, uh, you know, that, that power is a drug and, you know, you get a taste of it and you chase it. And you, I, I would argue that for some of these folks, they probably get to a point where they actually think that they're invincible, right? To the point where, you know, you've done things. Because the thing is, it's not like Michael Cohen probably woke up on the day that Donald Trump was elected president and did something that was out of line or out of step of the legal system, right? He's probably been doing it for years. Right. It's just the fact that it came to light because of the position his now former friend and former president uh, was in that a lot of those um, skeletons in the closet were coming out or people were just had a closer eye on it. Because, you know, whether it's the the, the Donald Trump um, uh, boxes in, in, at Mar-a-Lago or, or even the Joe Biden stuff and Hunter Biden. The people people make mistakes, but when you're in positions of power and you're in positions of authority and then you're not really liked by half of the country, people are going to look at you uh, at a much more uh, with much more scrutiny. And so it just kind of goes back to, to what I had said. Right. But Donald Trump thus far is this kind of black hole vortex that anyone who's close to him uh, gets sucked in and crushed um, for some they might make it through to this other side, you know, and, and I hear you, Michael Cohen has lost everything, but he's, he's kind of back on this, on this, you know, speaking circuit and, 
and he's and he's finding other ways to generate um, money and and uh, you know reclaim his life. Yes, he'll never be a lawyer again, and there's certainly that shame of being disbarred. And I'm sure he has very close friends and family that make Thanksgiving and whatever other holidays very awkward. But you know, I don't I don't think uh, he'll be in the um, you know in the soup kitchen line anytime soon, right? He he still has an immense amount of uh, stature and probably money saved and assets that he had had. Um, uh, and, and he can now, and he can, and, and he's also in a, a position now where he can almost like profit off of his time in jail. Right. Um, he can, he can speak about it and talk about that, that experience in a way that he can monetize it. So, you know, I don't really have much empathy for him either. <laughs> no, and I'm just, you know, look, white men, you know, they fall up, right? When they fall, you know, they, they don't fall like the rest of us. They fail sure. up, they fall up, whatever that saying is, you know, because as you just said, they're, they're able to monetize their pain in a way that most folks aren't. So he doesn't have to worry about checking the box about being a convicted felon because he's trying to get a job at Amazon or he's trying to get a job, you know, at the local donut or hamburger shop. He's going to be on their speaker circuit. He can, you know, he's a sought after by the media because he is willing now to share inside information about Donald Trump and to speak out against Donald Trump. So I'm not sitting around feeling sorry for uh, Michael Cohen either. I'm just perplexed by how willingly these other, you know, these people who are on the surface very well educated and have so much going for them, uh, how they're willing to put that on the line for someone who is as, uh, shallow and as you know, uh, evil. You use that word as Donald Trump, who has shown no loyalty to anyone, will throw anyone under the bus. And I, and I do feel empathy for some of these workers because I don't put them in the same category. You know, the mm-hmm. maintenance worker will not be on the speaker's circuit. Is not going to get, you know, million dollar book advance. Is not going to well. get paid to come give a speech. Uh, so if he gets convicted. He's likely to have to serve that time and then likely to suffer the consequences as a convicted felon. Mm-hmm. Um, that's unfortunate. But again, even for those folks, at some point you have to say, look, if you work for Donald Trump, you are assuming the risk, right? <laughs> it's, also sure. like, it's like there's a big warning sign on his back that tells anyone if you go anywhere near him, whether it's to do maintenance for him or to be his personal assistant, his chef, his lawyer, his accountant. Uh, you are subject to be, as you said, pulled into this vortex, and it is likely to cause you to lose uh, your reputation, your career, and in some instances, your freedom. So folks that continue to work for him, I was looking at an article about uh, this bank, online bank that has loaned him some money. uh, And now this bank is a subject of this high level of scrutiny. Other banks, cut ties, uh, you know, big accounting firms cut ties, but, you know, he can always find someone willing, you know, to be uh, associated with someone they believe is powerful. Uh, And so he has found someone willing to loan him like $250 million when major banks in this country have cut him off. And again, not very many folks that you or I know who are under federal indictment Mm -hmm. could walk into a bank and, you know, take out a, a loan for $250 million. So sure. uh, there you have it, white privilege at its finest. Uh, when we come forward, we'll talk about these, uh, you know, studies about legacy admissions. What does it really mean? Doctors spreading COVID misinformation and 
Barack Obama has a new song that is the opposite of what Jason Aldean is pushing in his latest song about his small town. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this hour, I'm joined by Dr. Calvin John Smiley, and we are helping you, I hope, uh, get a better understanding of all of this breaking news. And in hour two, I'm going one-on-one with Dr. Jocelyn Elders. She is the first African-American Surgeon General, was appointed under President Bill Clinton. Uh, Her documentary filmmaker is also going to join us. We're going to talk about uh, this new documentary from the cotton fields to the White House and the just stellar career of Dr. Elders and her brief time uh, working under President Clinton, how it ended, what uh, her contributions were to the healthcare field uh, over her illustrious career as a pediatrician. So make sure you stick around for that interview. All right, uh, Dr. uh, Smiley, Professor Smiley, legacy admissions in the news for the last couple of weeks after the Supreme Court uh, struck down affirmative action in college admissions. Civil rights groups have filed uh, a complaint and the Justice Department and Department of Ed has opened up, a civil rights uh, department has opened up an investigation into Harvard's legacy uh, admissions policies. And now there's some new stats out about who gets admitted, particularly at these top Ivy League schools, what their uh, qualifications are, and you know what it tells us about preferential treatment given to wealthy white kids. So what's your take on legacy admissions? Yeah, so one thing that we, we a term we use uh, in sociology is called the unanticipated consequences of actions. And, you know, it's it, it really wants to understand. So if you do one thing, what are all of the other things that can also happen here? And so what we've seen in this case around affirmative action is that these conservatives and, and more poignantly racists were, were so gung-ho on trying to take down affirmative action because they didn't want to see... Uh, minority uh, folks, you know, getting the same uh, access to to a higher education as uh, privileged white kids is that they might have also eliminated or at least that they've opened up the opportunity to eliminate legacy admissions because now that data is out there. Um, You know, one thing that I'll say about the, the legacy admissions is that, you know, part it, it's partly um, based on alumni givings and this idea of tradition, which also harkens back to those kind of, uh, you know, antebellum years of Mm -hmm. America, right? This idea of tradition and wanting to keep the same and preserve the past. That's that's what kind of this legacy admissions really look like. Um, I may have mentioned it uh, last time, but where I went to school, which was uh, an elite university, Lehigh University, uh, in my alumni magazine in the year I graduated, there was a, a whole article about a young man who was in my graduating class who was uh, the legacy, both he, his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather, a hundred years, had all gone to, to Lehigh. And, you know, that that's to me, you know, what part of this is. But um, we know that schools can get rid of legacy and still succeed, right? Um, Wesleyan University or Wesleyan in, in Connecticut, they've gotten rid of their 
their legacies and the school did not implode. Um, other places might start to consider consider uh, eliminating uh, uh, legacy. And again, we probably won't see them implode. What I'm also really uh, interested in in the years to come is how uh, schools will still in some way try, or at least I hope they will try, to continue to diversify their incoming student body without maybe using the same language of affirmative action. Uh, on that same token, if legacies are eliminated or at least not on paper as a uh, as something that uh, is used, how also on that side, uh, folks whose parents, grandparents, cousins, uncles, uh, whomever uh, uh, went to that school also still get uh, admitted. So, you know, what we also might be seeing here is just kind of changing of language, but not necessarily the trick that gets mm -hmm. folks into these places. So I'll say uh, to everyone who's listening, I'm a big proponent of public institutions and higher education in the, in the, in the uh, public field. Uh, I'm at the largest urban university in the country, CUNY, uh, City University of New York. And, you know, um, that that's where my allegiance lies. <laughs> you know, so one of the things and we talk about legacy admissions and the children of wealthy donors getting accepted into these top universities, there's also some uh, recent a piece out that shows that the Ivies plus some of the top universities in the country not only are, are you know, graduating a, a certain, you know, demographic of students, right, that get into those Ivies, but that those graduates occupy like the highest income earning jobs in our society. So there's a direct correlation between graduating from the Ivies plus the top universities. They they name in this uh, article Stanford and you know a couple of other top universities that when they look at who's in the jobs that pay the most money in this country, they come from those select universities. So there is a, a reason why a legitimate interest that we have or should have in making admissions to those top universities more accessible because yeah. they're pretty much dictating who's going to be in control of, you know, top corporations and, you know, who's going to be, you know, in the C-suites in most uh, institutions in this country. Yeah. And I had said that last time when we had, I think, talked briefly about legacies was that legacies don't stop at the admissions uh, for an 18-year-old getting into school, but go and continue on uh, while they're applying for jobs, while they're applying to internships, uh, while they're applying to graduate school programs. And that becomes part of the the longer, uh, or, or rather the, the bigger reason why we have to kind of maybe challenge these things, because it continues to deny access to uh, well-qualified folks, but don't have that connection. And, you know, I see that all the time. And, you know, uh, the the main difference that I see between many public uh, university students and the ones who go to the NYU's or the Columbia's isn't really that they're so much far you know advanced in terms of being able to write a paper or scholarly uh, credentials is that they simply don't have that same access to those uh, types of internships and uh, company jobs or whose father knows somebody to make a phone call, right? You know, so if you're already starting at a disadvantaged position from the social side of, of, these, of this bigger game of 
higher education, you know, we have to really put it on higher education to kind of uh, even that plane. Because even again, even if we get rid of legacy, those types of insider phone calls are not going to be stopped. So how do we create a system that gives everyone a more um, equal shot? And we know that simply taking people's, uh, taking certain demographic questions off of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, applications doesn't work because then they'll use names, right? So if you have a Keyshawn Johnson versus Bradley Johnson, or they'll use zip codes and addresses to uh, uh, try to ascertain, is this person coming from, I'll use a New York example, are they coming from Harlem? Or are they coming from downtown? Um, and, you know, or, or they'll use what their, what their essay is about, right? So, you know, if this person talking about, um, you know, uh, something that's... Uh, European travel, for instance, right, every right. summer. <laughs> exactly, right, exactly. Like, you know, I took a year abroad to go right. find myself versus I had to work in the summer because uh, I had to, you know, pay for, you know, part of our rent and all of those right. types of things that clearly still get used by admission admissions counselors. So, you know, we really have to kind of get to a point where um, not having this kind of... Uh, um, it, it, you know, it's so kind of a rat race, right? I mean, I think that's part of it is that um, the alternative is, you know, we don't really have things that are non-college anymore in, in America, like vocational jobs and kind of good union jobs. So everyone kind of feels like they need to be in higher education. And, and that's great. But at the same time, then there becomes this kind of filtration upwards as opposed to saying, well, you can get a good degree at a lot of different schools, not have to go into a lot of debt. Um, but yeah, uh, no, you're right. And you're, <laughs> it, it does create this dilemma because a lot of young people don't want to go to college, but there's a study out today that says more women than men stand to lose their jobs. And of course they're talking about women of color, uh, by the end of the decade because of the rise of artificial intelligence and automation. And so if you don't have an education and you're already, uh, we're already as black women, brown women overrepresented. Uh, in, you know, customer service and food service, that those are the, the jobs that are going to disappear uh, because of automation and artificial intelligence. Uh, so it's, it's a little scary out here. You know, young people are saying, hey, I don't need college. I'm going to get my gig economy, my hustle on. Uh, right. The reality is, you know, automation is going to change the game for a lot of folks and particularly those low income, uh, low wage earning folks. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about Ron DeSantis, is he cooking the books? Uh, the Federal Election Commission report suggests that something's not right about how he's reporting, how much he is spending in his presidential campaign. Stick with us, KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Dr. Smiley, we are continuing to track today's uh, breaking news and trending news. And one of the big stories today is about, obviously, Donald Trump and this additional charges added to the indictment regarding his mishandling of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, but also Ron DeSantis. He seemingly now is in the news every day, almost as much as Donald Trump, and it's not good news for him either. He's not under indictment, but there are some questions about his Federal Election Commission report. Uh, some are raising questions about how much money he actually is spending, whether he's you know churning through what he has uh, raised for his presidential campaign at a rapid pace and that his actual spending is not- uh, if, I, 
if I is not actually on his, uh, you know, election commission report. And, you know, it's kind of funny, as I was reading this article, they said he and his wife were dashing off to get on a private jet to take, you know, go to a campaign stop. I think it was going to be Iowa. They were going to get on a bus. Uh, he and his wife apparently have not been on a commercial jet in a long, long time. And donors are saying, wait, dude, you, you're doing poorly in the polls. You're, you know, churning through all this money. And a lot of them are saying, we're going to sit on the sidelines until we see if you can pull this together. What do you make of, of Ron DeSantis now, in addition to all of his other problems, seemingly he's got a donor problem as well as perhaps a reporting of his spending problem? Yeah, you know, it's like how we said earlier, you know, um, DeSantis at some level was was at least coming out uh, using some of the, the same provocative playbook that Donald Trump did, right? He wanted to go after things. He wanted to be in the news. And while that gets you the headlines and gets you some buzz, it also brings out the magnifying glass and it brings out the um, uh, uh, the naysayers and the other kind of critics that are going to look at you a little bit with a little bit more scrutiny. Um, and so, you know, my hunch would be that there probably is some finance uh, uh, inconsistency or, or, or monies that are not really being reported. Um, how he's going to change that in the polls, you know, I think his team has to has to figure it out, right? Is it that they, you know, can, you know, there's only so much bashing they can do of Black people. There's only so much bashing they can do of LGBT uh, folks um, to, to, to garner uh, uh, support there's at some level you have to start putting out policies that are going to appeal to a more general uh, American audience. I mean, you know, just to to kind of just to use both Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And, I, you know, I always hate to give Donald Trump credit, but, you know, there was some you know, we, we all know that there was something beautiful about a Barack Obama in 2008 with his hope and change slogans. That was something that appealed to folks across uh, race, class, and gender spectrums. Donald Trump, you, you know, to a lesser, but still to an extent with the Make America Great thing and keeping it vague and keeping it broad had an appeal. And we saw that that appeal even broadened between 2016 and 2020 as he gained support within Black men and uh, Latinx men and, and uh, Latinx folks in general. Uh, you know, the only the only place that he continued not to gain support was Black women. Um, but DeSantis doesn't have that. His whole thing is like, let me bash people who are already at the bottom of, of, of the of, of the ladder of the kind of social hierarchy of, of, of the U.S. And, you know, that's going to bring out your racist, your sexist. But, you know, they're going to be conservative blacks, conservative Asians, conservative Hispanics who are going to eventually turn around and say, OK, great. What else do you got? And, and he hasn't figured that out yet. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the the racist folks have already decided which camp they're in. They right. already got a candidate and it doesn't happen to be a Ron DeSantis. And you're right. You know, the his donors, big donors are saying, you know, we get the anti-woke and that Florida is where woke goes to die. But what else you got for us? And particularly given this incredible economy that Joe Biden is, uh, the you know, getting credit for, which he should. 
it really leaves the Republicans with a big gaping hole in their playbook because they had hoped to run on a horrible economy. They hope that gas prices were out of control, that egg prices and grocery prices were out of control, uh, that economists were talking about gloom and doom as it relates to the economy. But to the contrary, as I started, you know, Taylor Swift is, you know, igniting uh, and boosting the economy everywhere she goes. And not just again with concert tickets and hotels, but, you know, spending money in restaurants and on experiences. And that's boosting the economy of these cities. And she's on her way to L.A. And in fact, the workers, the hotel workers that are on strike in Los Angeles want her to stand with them. That's how powerful uh, she has become. And of course, we're all waiting to see if, if Beyonce's Renaissance Tour will have the same impact. So it doesn't leave someone like Ron DeSantis many places to go because he's kind of a one note guy. You know, we think all those singers that have one song, you know, one hit wonders. And we don't know where they are. Don't know what happened to them. We, you know, maybe can pull a CD that they made, you know, back in the day. And so he's got to do more. He's got to tell us why should we vote for you? And out trumping Trump isn't working because the people that like Trump, well, guess what? They like Trump. They don't want a clone of Trump. They're going to vote for Trump. So he's got a big problem and I'm not sure how he fixes it. And, you know, if he won't get off his private jet, it's kind of hard to convince your donors that you're becoming lean and mean and that you're cutting back and you and your wife have to fly, you know, by private jet everywhere you go. You can't even fly first class on a commercial jet. So, uh, you know, we'll watch to see as he continues to, to crash and burn uh, real quickly. Uh you know, this black country singer, Michael Trotter, Nashville-based musician, grew up in D.C. He has the, you know, he slapped, you know, the, the clap back to Jason Aldean's song about what he says is about honoring his small town. And he's Michael's getting a boost from Barack Obama, who's put his song Ain't No Harm in Me on his summer playlist. Why is this important? The Obama playlist, music movies, uh, books, that's that's such a huge uh, uh, lift for whoever the artist or author or uh, 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 filmmaker is because of Barack Obama's platform. So to be honored on that list is a huge deal. And what I really love about it is that it, it, it really is, you know, um, the opposite of that other song. And, you know, one thing is, you know, when downright racist things are made, Sometimes the best way to defeat them is to not to talk about them. But when we talk about them more, and again, you know, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a slim line, right? Because obviously, you know, if you ignore it completely, that's not good. But if you over talk about it, then it actually gives it more credibility and more people listen to it. So to have this song come out to juxtapose that and actually give that kind of credibility. And it also is, you know, I'm not, a huge country music guy myself, but, uh, but I listened to the song and it just it, it objectively, you know, Trotter's song is just much more better than the other song, like just objectively, <laughs> sonically, it sounds better. Uh, um, and so it's great to see, to see that, uh, that Obama and now did Obama do that for political reasons? Maybe. I mean, you know, I know there's been, there's always been question on, who actually curates Obama's list. And he always claims that he does it. It's not a team. It's not handlers. So, you know, if he's really listening to that and, and giving it that, that kind of credibility and that, you know, substantive boost, uh, that's really amazing because um, yeah, we need that. 
Yeah, we can always count on Obama. You know, he's the subtle guy, right? He's not the guy that's going to come out and make a big speech and condemn the song and say, you know, the video should be taken down and we shouldn't listen to it. He's just going to quietly do what he does. And by doing that, make the biggest and the loudest statement. And so thanks, uh, President Obama, for using your power and your platform. Because as you said, Dr. Smiley, just showing up on that list, like Oprah's favorite list, can, uh, you know, be a huge boost to a product or, uh, you know, a, a particular brand or an individual out there doing something positive like Michael Trotter. So kudos to Michael Trotter and to former President Barack Obama. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Professor Smiley. Always a pleasure. I'm a lot smarter when I spend time with you. Uh, when we come forward, you can be talking to Dr. J uh, Jocelyn Elders, the first and only African-American female uh, Surgeon General about her story, her life in this new documentary that tells the story of her going from the cotton fields literally to the White House and what it was like during the time that she served under President Bill Clinton. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. The economic recovery gained momentum in the spring as American consumers continued spending despite rising interest rates and warnings of a looming recession. Gross domestic product adjusted for inflation rose at a 2.4% annual rate in the second quarter. The resilience of the economy has surprised economists, many of whom thought that higher inflation and the Federal Reserve's efforts to stamp it out through aggressive interest rate increases would lead to a recession or at least a clear slowdown in the first half of the year. Lawyers for President Donald Trump met today with officials in the office of the special counsel, Jack Smith, as federal prosecutors edge closer toward bringing an indictment against Mr. Trump in connection with his wide ranging efforts to overturn the 2020 uh, election. It was not immediately clear what subjects were actually discussed at the meeting or if Mr. Smith actually took part. But similar gatherings are often used by defense lawyers as a last-ditch effort to argue against charges being filed or to convey their version of events in a criminal investigation. And in more breaking news regarding former President Donald Trump, the Office of the Special Counsel accused the former president today of seeking to delete security camera footage at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, a maintenance worker, Carlos de Oliveira, was named today as a new defendant in that federal indictment involving the mishandling of classified documents. Uh, federal prosecutors added major accusations to an indictment charging Trump with mishandling classified documents, uh, saying that he told this maintenance worker that he wanted security camera footage there to be deleted. And new data shows that at elite private colleges, the children of alumni known as the legacies are in fact slightly more qualified than typical applicants. Even if their legacy status weren't considered, they would still be about 33% more likely to be admitted than applicants with the same test scores based on all of their other qualifications, demographic characteristics, and parents' income and education. Yet, the admissions advantage they get at many elite colleges for being children of alumni is far greater than that. These students were nearly four times as likely to be admitted as applicants with the same test scores. And legacy students from the richest 1% of families were five times as likely to be admitted. 
Very few doctors were punished for spreading COVID-19 misinformation. A post-analysis of disciplinary records from state medical boards found that they rarely disciplined doctors who misled patients about vaccines, masks, and unproven treatments. There were at least 480 COVID misinformation-related complaints made to the boards. Only a tiny fraction of those led to disciplinary action, including five doctors losing their medical license. Florida passed a law in May that effectively prevents professional boards from punishing doctors accused of spreading COVID misinformation online. Well, weeks of scorching summer heat in North America, Europe, Asia, and elsewhere are putting July on track to be Earth's warmest month on record. Now, the latest milestone in what is emerging as an extraordinary year for global temperatures. Last month, the planet experienced its hottest June since records began in 1850. July 6th was its hottest day, and the odds are rising that 2023 will end up displacing 2016 as the hottest year. And at the moment, the eight warmest years on the books are the past eight. DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, that is, donors have specifically raised concerns about the campaign's finances, which appear both troubling and persistently opaque. Some prominent vendors did not show up on the first Federal Election Commission report, raising questions about how much of the spending has been deferred and whether the campaign's total reported cash on hand of $9.2 million was even close to accurate. Major Republican donors, including the hedge fund billionaire Kenneth Griffin, have remained on the sidelines because they are disappointed in DeSantis' performance and his campaign. The Justice Department today said it had begun a sweeping civil rights investigation into policing in Memphis, examining allegations of pervasive problems with excessive force and unlawful stops of Black residents that were amplified by the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols in January. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we go deeper and bring you the news behind the headlines with newsmakers, thought leaders, people impacted by the news, and the nation's leading experts. Today in hour two, I'm talking to one of the nation's most celebrated newsmakers, Dr. Jocelyn Elders, and documentary filmmaker, Dr. Sonny Wheaton. Uh, Dr. Wheaton chronicles Dr. Elder's life and okay, work uh, led Time Magazine to name her one of the 100 most influential women of the 20th century. The new documentary out on Dr. Elder's is called From the Cotton Fields to the White House. When we come forward, we're going to talk to Dr. Elders and Dr. Wheaton about this extraordinary documentary. Uh, learn how someone who literally uh, worked as a sharecropper on a farm as a sharecropper picking cotton, how she became the nation's first African-American female Surgeon General when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Appointed by President Bill Clinton in 1993, Dr. Jocelyn Elders became the first African-American to serve as Surgeon General of the United States 
Her outspoken views soon began to outrage the religious right. On the subject of reproductive rights, Dr. Elders encouraged Americans to, quote, get over this love affair with the fetus, end of quote. She also suggested studying the idea of drug legalization two decades before it entered the political mainstream. And as Newsweek reported in 1994, Dr. Elders favored handing out condoms to public school children, inspiring Rush Limbaugh to nickname her the Condom Queen. Dr. Elder's visionary thinking got her the appointment as the first African-American Surgeon General, but it also got her fired from this prominent position after only 14 months in office. The life of Dr. Jocelyn Elders is now being told in a documentary from the cotton fields to the White House. And the documentary filmmaker, Dr. Sonny Wheaton is here, as well as none other than Dr. Jocelyn Elders. Welcome, Dr. Elders and Dr. Wheaton. Thank you, Avina. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right, Dr. Elders, got to start with you. I have read that you are the eldest of eight children born to sharecroppers in rural Arkansas, uh, that you're actually the granddaughter of an escaped slave. Uh, but despite that, you graduated first in your high school class, went on uh, to get a scholarship to Philander Smith College in Little Rock, Little Rock, and obviously went on to medical school. How, uh, you know, help us understand how someone who's working as a, you know, as a sharecropper picking cotton ends up uh, getting a scholarship to college. Well, of course, it was a very small school. You have to understand that. And at that time, it was, it, it was in Arkansas, it was an all-Black school. So, yeah, but I was, you know, did, well, t- tops in my class, but you have to remember, I had, I studied very hard doing my lessons by a kerosene lamp at night. And my mother had worked very hard to give me a good start. start. When I started school, I already knew my ABC alphabet. I knew my numbers. I knew my multiplication tables to five, and I could read. Wow. We didn't now, have a kindergarten, you know, as such, but you know, we're talking about four or five years old, but my mother was a, my kindergarten teacher. What about your other brothers and sisters, Dr. Elders? Did they go on to college as well? Let me brag for, if you'll allow me to brag <laughs> for just a minute. I had seven sisters and brothers, and I have a a, a sister. Well, only two of them did not finish college. My oh, my and my older brother, who I think had probably had a some reading disability, but he worked for uh, General Motors for 53 years. And out of the 53 years of work, he missed three days of work. Uh, Yeah, to me, that's something to brag about. He made more money than all of us, I think. (laughs) Uh, But but, but my second brother, uh, my brother Bernard, was a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, He went to Tuskegee. Institute. He was a veterinarian. My uh, next uh, 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 sister uh, 
well, my second sister. Uh, uh, she uh, she did not go to college, but she was the over human resources at General Motors. I mean, she had it. She did well. My next, uh, I have to do them, but and we have eight of them. You know, you have to do them. <laughs> in Sorry, uh, it, it, he. Uh, he graduated, I have to think of who they are. Before. Oh, but my next brother was a minister, Chester. He was, he, he, he was, uh, became a general surgeon for the world, the United wow. Methodist Church. So obviously he went to college too. He went to Baker University and so obviously, you come from a very successful uh, family. All of you, you know, oh, your siblings have done very well. Uh, yes, uh, my sister. She, I had a sister who she got a PhD in linguistics from University of Michigan. Now they all worked very hard. They all studied very hard, and they all felt that you know, I was the mother hen. So I was <laughs> always pushing and demanding that they go to school do the best they can. And my mom always said, always do your best. That's good enough. Well, you followed that advice for sure. Uh, I know August 13th, you're going to celebrate your 90th birthday. Oh, I know. Uh, congratulations on that. And, and so much. I, I mean, your resume is so incredible. You were uh, in the army you yes. did pediatric research at the University of Arkansas. You eventually became uh, the, uh, you were appointed to the Arkansas Health Department. Tell us what that was like to be in such a position of power in Arkansas. And this must have been in the 70s and 80s. Yes. In, 19, in 1964, 60, uh, before, I was the chief resident in pediatrics at the University of Arkansas. And over nine white male residents wow. in Arkansas. So uh, that was that was probably got a lot of uh, attention. Uh, and but then, as uh, being the director of health for the state of Arkansas was probably one of the most rewarding jobs I ever had because we had a major problem with p unplanned teenage pregnancies and of course you know when you start talking about pregnancy and sex in the south and what you can do about it and you know I was wanting to start school-based health clinics I wanted to make sure that children had access to one of the real problems you know in the delta they didn't have access to education they didn't have access to uh contraceptives you know and they didn't have money to go buy contraceptives. So it was a real issue. And so so this was a real problem that we had to tackle. But I, I really, I just got everybody involved. And the most difficult group I had to deal with was probably the ministers. Mm. But, you know, but the one place that people go almost every week uh, every, is to church. Oh, and, and, and so, it's so I my brother 
helped me to get the ministers involved. And so we had to really get the ministers on board. And then so and and then we just started getting more and more groups involved in dealing with that. And so and and so the minister who was over I started out with in dealing with HIV AIDS. You know, that was when it was well, let me ask you this, Dr. Elders. I, I know you were a visionary. So you were talking about preventative, as you said, preventing teen pregnancies, and uh, you favored handing out condoms in public school. And that was thought to be, you know, a pretty revolutionary idea in the 60s and 70s, particularly in the Deep South, as uh, many folks were, you know, a part of the religious right. So what kind of pushback did you get from the ministers when you started talking about giving condoms out to school kids? Well, what kind of very much opposed to that, you know, but they just said, well, you know, don't do it. Well, they started, they made a mistake by saying that I was out trying to prevent abortions. And I reminded them that I was not about abortions. I was about preventing unplanned, unwanted pregnancies. As I had never seen a woman I never known any woman who needed an abortion who was not already pregnant. Mm-hmm. So I felt that we needed to prevent unplanned pregnancies. And yeah, so- I heard you say something, uh, Dr. Elders, during your confirmation hearing that, that just really struck me. It resonated with me because we hear it often in today's conversations about abortions. Uh, and it was a comment. One of the Republican senators was questioning you. Uh, about this comment I guess you had made uh, regarding pro-lifers and the fact that pro-lifers were in love with the fetus or a fetus, but when children were actually born, they wouldn't support uh, Medicaid, they wouldn't support health care, they wouldn't support quality education. So you were challenging this notion that they were pro-life. I, I was watching the senator turn red as you stood your ground on that point. Absolutely. I tell them they had a love affair with the fetus and they loved little children as long as they were in somebody else's uterus. And I talk, we talked about how they didn't care about them once they were here. And that was when we talked about health care, education and the other things that we have to provide for children to, to make sure they grow up healthy, educated, motivated and have hope for the future. And that's what we should be about. And so even some of your other ideas about drug legalization and your work around HIV AIDS, again, you were ahead of your time talking about these topic topics that during that period were pretty much taboo. Well, I think they were taboo, but because people just didn't know. We had not educated our society on what we need to do to prevent the problems they were talking about. They were talking about things that, you know, we didn't know enough about drugs and I felt that we should study. And we still haven't studied what we need to do. And, you know, and the big thing at that time was in regard to marijuana. And, you know, marijuana is, has never been as destructive on our society as alcohol. And yet we all drink. I won't say we all drink, but many people drink alcohol and it's all right. 
all right. And it, so I'm just saying that we need to, some things we need to study. We need to know more about it. And I think most of our reactions against many of these things were related to our lack of knowledge. Knowledge. All right, Dr. Wheaton, jump in here. How did you meet the iconic Dr. Jocelyn Elders? Well, you know, she, you know, I mean, she is a national treasure in my view. And um, this was probably about 15 years ago. I had decided that I wanted to learn more about how African-American women had been able to become so accomplished because there was so much working against them. Um, and so I decided I was going to interview African-American women who had accomplished great things and learn more about it. And I did that. I interviewed 30 women. I wrote a book called Many Blessings, A Tapestry of Accomplished African-American Women. And Dr. Elders came to my mind because I had always admired her. And but I didn't know how to get in touch with her. So I do have many friends in Little Rock. I'm a Californian. And um, I called my friend Rick Smith, Dr. Rick Smith, and said, do you know how to get in touch with Dr. Joyce and Elders? He said, <clears throat> Dr. Elders was one of my professors in medical school. Of course, I know her and I will help you get in touch with her. So that's how it happened. I interviewed her for my book. I went to her home and it was just an amazing interview. I was more inspired. I learned more about her in that process. And the book was published, et cetera. Um, I think to this day, there's nothing quite like it. I, there was a, this cohort of women who came through during the women's movement and the civil rights movement, came through at the same time, that probably were there all along, but had not had the opportunity you know, to move forward uh, and progress in the way that they might have otherwise. So I thought it was a very particular group of women. And uh, that's how it happened. And then several years ago, one of the women from the book, Vicki Stringer, said to me, I think you should go back and make movies of all the women. <laughs> I'm a psychologist. I I'm not a filmmaker, although now I am a filmmaker, but I'm really a psychologist and an author. And I didn't really know how to do it. But I've had a lot of help along the way. And uh, I just think that it's so important for not just the American people, but for the world to know what Dr. Elders has done, continues to do, that the issues that she raised way back when are issues of the day. And I, I, want, I want people not only to know her story as an historical fact, but also as inspiration, because I can't think of a more inspirational story than hers. And you've just heard, you know, you've read a part of it, you've heard a part of it. And so I think this documentary is going to be incredibly wonderful, a tribute to her, a legacy to what she's contributed. And I really want her name to be a household word among uh, our citizens and perhaps elsewhere, who knows? Well, thank you so much for, uh, you know, picking up the mantle. And in this moment where Black history is being erased and their erased. efforts yeah. across the country to distort uh, our history and to really rewrite the origin story of this country, telling the stories of women like Dr. Elders uh, is more important than ever. And I agree with you. Her name should be a household name. It should be a name that, you know, we know as well as the name of Rosa Parks and other great civil rights leaders, because uh, Dr. Elders, uh, you know, is the first and 
did groundbreaking work. And when we come forward, I really want to talk, we're going to talk about this appointment from the Arkansas Department of Health to the U.S. Surgeon General's office by Bill Clinton, what it was like to be the first Black uh, person and obviously the first Black woman as Surgeon General. And then what was it like uh, that day when Bill Clinton asked you to resign? Uh, Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are talking with Dr. Jocelyn Elder. She is the first African-American to serve as Surgeon General of the United States. She was appointed to that position by former President Bill Clinton in 1993. And after only 14 months, President Clinton asked Dr. Elders to resign that position. Uh, We also are joined in this hour by Dr. Sonny Wheaton, who is a psychologist and documentary filmmaker, and she has chronicled the life of Dr. Elders in a new, a short documentary called From the Cotton Fields to the White House. All right, Dr. Elders, uh, you've done a lot of things. By the time you get that call from Bill Clinton saying that he wants you to become the Surgeon General, what was it like uh, to get a call from the president? asking you to take on that position? Well, at the time, I was the director of health for the state of Arkansas, and I was just having a good time. I had 2,400 of the most wonderful employees, and we were making lots of progress. And so it was, uh, I had to think about it. In fact, I wasn't sure that that was really what I wanted to do. You know, when you're having a good time, it's (laughs) hard to, say you don't want to do something else. Well, but my mother and dad knew, had known the president before, but we're from a small town, not too far from where he's from. And, you know, and they they loved him. And so my mother called and she says, when I was talking about it, she says, well, you know, she said, I saw him on TV or radio, whatever. She said, and he's up there, and you've just got to go up there and help him. And so, well, you know, when your mother asks you to do something, <laughs> you usually do it, whether you want to or not. But, 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 obviously, I was very honored and flattered to uh, to be asked. You, you know, you always are. So to say that I wasn't would not be a truth. But. It's- did you, Dr. Elders, was it your intention to go to Washington, D.C. and to continue the work that you were doing in Arkansas around a teen pregnancy, around HIV AIDS, around, you know, preventing the spread of sexually transmitted diseases? Was was that your vision? Was that you would carry that work uh, that you had started in Arkansas to uh, the Surgeon General's office? My intention when I went to Washington, D.C., is to make a difference in preventing teen teen pregnancies and young Black women. Because I feel if you can't control your reproduction, you can't control your life. And so I, from that, I, 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 yeah, I, you know, I felt that it was important. And I wanted to make a difference in healthcare. I wanted to improve the health. You know, you've got to improve the health. Uh, and so I did want to do that. But my big thing was if I could make a greater difference and making a difference in young Black women's life. And so in order to do that, I felt that I had to start and get education. 
early childhood education. I felt that we needed school-based health clinics in order to get, get them a good start or with early childhood education and school-based health clinics. I, I, I felt that we needed to be offered them an opportunity to go to college. So, so I was really about making a difference in their lives to improve the, to, and, and that was what I was really about. I was obviously going to, to I needed to improve public health and and all and we needed to improve education but i was more um, more involved in making a difference with education and i felt that that would and the best way to make a difference is to make sure that they went to school went to college did not and have babies when they wanted to and i didn't care if they had 20 babies <laughs> i just wanted them to have babies when they got ready to have babies and so Sounds like an ambitious and very meaningful vision of, you know, what a, a public health physician, the nation's uh, physician should be doing. Was President Clinton aligned with your vision? I mean, I, I assume you had lots of conversations. You laid out your vision to him. Was he in agreement with your vision? I think President Clinton was very much in agreement with my vision. I mean, he certainly felt that uh, we wanted to have planned pregnancies, you know, and and he wanted to do the things that we needed to do to make sure that that happened. He was very much for early childhood education and getting children a good start. I I always felt if they got a good start, they would do well. If you start behind, you start behind, you stay behind, and you never catch up. So, so I, I, I'm, and obviously, everybody, you know, we all wanted to prevent HIV. But, and we were about all we are, we've always been about preventing smoking. And, you know, all Surgeon Generals worked very hard. And we very much wanted to have it, health care for everybody. We've not gotten that yet. We're still right. working on it. We made some progress, but uh, we're not there yet. So the president is aligned with your vision for the office. Uh, you're carrying on, you know, extending some of the work you were doing in Arkansas, but extending it, obviously. So what happened? How is it that 14 months later, uh, after being uh, approved, uh, affirmed for this position Difficult. that you're asked to resign? Well, yeah, I think as, as you know, I was very much, uh, there were some problems going on at the time. Uh, Our country has never been able to talk about sexuality issues. We start talking about sex and we all go crazy. Yet we know every, you know, how did we get here? (laughs) We're sexual beings from the day we're born until the day we die. So, I and I felt that, and we talked about well, how do we prevent? How are you going to prevent HIV/AIDS? And we talked, and I went to gave a talk at the at the World Health Center on World AIDS Day, and we were talking about the A, B, C, D of AIDS prevention and abstinence. Well, you know, 
aren't going to be. So, so you're thinking that your openness and your willingness to talk openly about sex and sexuality created a problem, a political issue for the president? I don't think it was creating that much of a political issue for the president. I think it, it was a issue for everybody else. And I think the president was doing what he felt. He felt that the country was pressing on him at the time. But I don't think that uh, I, I don't. But they were pressing on him to do what? They, they thought you believe the country wanted someone who was less open about sex and sexuality, someone yes. who wasn't as oh, outspoken yes. as you were? Um, yes, I believe that. And I, I, and I think they did. Yeah, yeah. How did you deal with, let me ask you this, how did you deal with what, you know, the public humiliation of being asked to resign, you know, after such a short, uh, you know, tenure in that office? You know, I don't feel, I did, don't feel that I felt humiliated. I felt that I was fighting for what I believed in. I was fighting for young Black women and young women, especially to be able to uh, uh, express their sexuality, not have unplanned pregnancies. And that's what I was about when the United States had the second highest teenage pregnancy in the world. So uh, unplanned pregnancy in the world among teenagers. So I felt that I was fighting for young women. And I will continue, and I felt I was right. I still feel that I'm right. And I, and I, I, so I didn't feel humiliated. I felt that the country. Well, were you angry then? If you weren't humiliated, you, what, what emotion did you feel? I felt that I had to continue to try to do the best for the bright young women of the world to make a difference so they would take good care of me when I got to be 80. And I'm expecting them to walk up and do that. Okay, and that's great. But when we come forward, I, I, I want to ask you, I, I, you had to feel something about Bill Clinton, who gave you this, you know, appointed you to this position, obviously believed in you, believed in your mission, but yet succumbed to some kind of pressure uh, to ask you to resign from that position and, you know, cause you not to be able to do this work that you were so passionate about. When we come forward, more with Dr. Jocelyn elders and the filmmaker that is chronicling her life in a new documentary. Say with us, KBOA Talk 1580. Dr. Jocelyn Elders is here. She's the first African-American Surgeon General and a filmmaker who has made a documentary of her life called From the Cotton Fields to the White House. Dr. Elders, I know you said you didn't feel humiliated, and I can understand why based on the important work that you were doing and the commitment and passion you had to that work. But you had to feel some kind of way about Bill Clinton. I feel some kind of way about him asking you to resign. <laughs> it didn't even happen to me. And I think African-Americans all over this country felt some kind of way and others, too. So not just black folks, but particularly black women because of what you represented, uh, because of the significant work that you were doing. We weren't happy with his decision to ask you to resign. Uh, so tell us what you were feeling. Well. You know, I, I, I obviously didn't leave a job I loved, which he'd given me, to to go to Washington to come home and 
in 14 months, you know, and I uprooted my husband. But, you know, I felt that, you know, he'd gone through some problems too. And after my talk, talking about the A, B, C, D of AIDS prevention, A for abstinence, where I mentioned we're sexual beings from the time we're born till we die. B, be faithful. When you look at all the things that are going on in the country, you know that a lot of people aren't faithful to to their girl wives and girlfriends and boyfriends or whatever. C, use a latex condom, uh, condom, and D, do other things. And the other things was masturbation. Or when I mentioned masturbation, I thought the whole world was going to turn green. And mm. I said that everybody who had ever, who you know, who had ever masturbated and 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 didn't lie had to admit whether they masturbated or not. If the whole most of the world were turned green, so <laughs> I'm just saying that. Uh, so 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 I so I I believe that to be a fact. You know, it wasn't that I, and, you know, science says that it's a fact. You know, those are the facts. So. I, okay, I, I understand that that was a taboo word, a taboo topic. Right. Uh, Dr. Whedon, in your research for this documentary, how bad did it get in that era? How hard did the Republican right, the Christian conservative right come uh, for a doctor, uh, you know, elders and how much of you know how much what kind of pressure were they putting on Bill Clinton in this moment? Are you asking me, Avina? Yes, from your research. Whoa. Um, you know, I don't think I can comment on that. I think it's really better for Dr. Elders to comment on that. Um, I I really don't know the answer. Yeah. Well, I don't know how much pressure that they were I think they were putting a lot of pressure on Bill Clinton. But the Republicans were putting a lot of pressure on Bill Clinton about everything. Mm -hmm. You know, he was from the South, and this was a lot of pressure going on. And I really, I, I don't think they were really nearly as concerned about me as such as that I was a football, somebody that they could kick around. And 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 talk about and so I, I so I, I I don't feel and I never see I guess maybe I I never felt that any of it was about me mm-hmm. even everything that he was saying about drugs or whatever I never felt that any of that was about me mm-hmm. I felt that it was more uh, so much was about Bill Clinton and the person who. One of the senators who really helped me an awful lot and made me feel confident and good was, was uh, Ted Kennedy. Mm. You know, he always says, "That's my surgeon general." <laughs> and, yeah, and he would, you know, even before I was appointed, and he really worked. He really worked day and night to get me approved, and I'm sure he twisted. Lots of arms, <laughs> and I'm. I'll always be very, very grateful to him for what he did. There were others who did some things, but 
he was the leader. Right. He, well, let me ask you this, Dr. Elders. You are by far one of the nation's leading pioneers on, you know, civil rights, women's rights, reproductive rights. How are you feeling in this moment with the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court, uh, watching all of these states across the country uh, put into place, pass these laws that provide uh, restrictions for abortions, even in the case of incest and rape? Uh, you know, how does that make you feel about where we are Horrible. in this country? Horrible. I mean, I never, you know, I never really felt that we would overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I never felt that that would happen. And in fact, I would say, I say, if those politicians out there feel that they could overturn Roe v. Wade, the women are going to rise up and put them in their places. I guess I really need to be out, be out, have been out there screaming. And I was, but I, I wasn't. But, but I feel that I, I just didn't feel that we as women would allow them to do that. And if they did, we send them home. They, right. and well, we still have time. We still have time to do that. Well, then I want to break in here and say that I arrived at Dr. Elder's house on the day that Roe Wade was overturned. And when she opened the door, I said, Dr. Elders, I mean, do we just give up or what? And she said, no, Sonny, we don't give up. We fight. We fight. And so, so we fight. That's right. And we really, I think we as women have got to fight. You know, I think we find we have more and more women are going into politics. More and more women are going into medicine. Women are much more compassionate. And I feel that these are the things that we as women have got to do. And if we as women don't stand up, we've come a long way. Now, I, we've fought hard battles and we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And we've just got to get up, stand up and fight for, for our rights. Absolutely. And thank you for, you know, leading the charge and setting that example. Real quickly, uh, Dr. Elders, as disappointed and outraged as we all are about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, you must feel really good about the significant drop in teen pregnancies that has happened in this country over the last several decades. You know, I'm thrilled to death about that. You know, we have, have a, had a 56% decrease and teenage pregnancy. And I'm very proud about that. And I think there were an awful lot of women all over the world that fought very hard to improve. Uh, but yeah, but that not only improved the lives of women, it improved the lives of children, it improved, improved the lives of our whole country because it makes a real difference. Thank you. And I agree uh, wholeheartedly with you. Thank you for, again, the work that you did and being a pioneer leading that charge and now seeing that significant drop. Uh, we have to give you credit uh, for what we are seeing and women now being able to have you know, in some states like California in particular, uh, you know, freedom over their reproductive rights. Real quickly, uh, Dr. Wheaton, where can people find download and view uh, from the cotton fields to the White House. All right, so this is important. It, the, the full documentary is only about halfway done. And we are in the process of raising the funds to complete this work. 
Uh, Stuart Sender from Balcony Films is the filmmaker, <clears throat> along with Malcolm Clark. We've already had the agreement, <clears throat> excuse me, of Atanas Gurdjieff, who has won two Academy Awards to do the post-production work. So we're in the process of raising funds to make, as I said before, Dr. Elder's a household word and for us to preserve her legacy as a national treasure. So if people, if your audience would like to contribute to that, we're, we're raising the funds to complete the documentary. They can do that by going to the website, the number four, forgiving.com forward slash donation forward slash BEF3. And they can make a contribution that is going to, to move this project forward. And so I, I really wanted your listeners to hear about that because this is going to be a full length documentary. Um, and we're hoping, uh, uh, Stuart Sender and I are hoping that it can be nominated for an Academy Award as he has been nominated for Academy Awards in the past and has won many Emmys. So we're hopeful. Again, thank you, uh, Dr. Whedon, for doing this important work and highlighting this story. Again, it's from the Cotton Fields to the White House. She gave the website where you can participate in helping to raise the funds needed to complete this very, very important story. Dr. Jocelyn Elders was Woman of the Year in 1994. Time Magazine says she was one of the most influential women of the 20th century. Thank you so much, Dr. Elders, for your incredible work. Uh, we cherish you. We honor you. And happy early birthday on August 13th. Uh, thanks to all of you for tuning in today. We are out of time. The next voice that you hear will be right.